Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then we are up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with 30 Minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Friday the 24th of November. Coming up on the program, a Black Black Friday as ESCOM crashes us into stage six load shedding. Saab's warning on salaries. Think twice before buying that Black Friday musical biscuit maker. Why moving to a small town can kill your dreams. And is the Gauteng government failing us on climate change? It is with great regret that ESCOM announces that due to the shortage of generating capacity and emergency reserves, Stage 6 load shedding will be implemented from 12 midday today until 5 a.m. on Monday. ESCOM will publish a further communication today and continue to closely monitor the power system. All day stage six load shedding is back. ESCOM says the country is escalated to stage six, claiming that it has been hit, and I use the word snag, it's the one they provided with a generation capacity problem. It's also worth noting, by the way, that this week the Financial Times asked the Public Enterprises Minister, Pravin Gordon, if stage six would be back anytime shortly, and his reply, unlikely. Let's begin the program with Antoinette Slubbert, who is a journalist at the Rapport, who is working that story for us. Antoinette, a very warm welcome. We have been warned, though, all week, haven't we? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Yes, indeed. It is, we are um, experiencing a heat wave the whole week and also going into next week in the northern parts of the country. And that also affects or has an effect on the ESCOM uh, coal-fired power stations, those uh, um, air, with the air-cooled condensers. Uh, I'm talking about power stations like Matimba, which is usually a quite a good performer. When the temperatures are this high, um, they have what they call partial load losses. In other words, it can generate electricity, but not at the level, uh, you know, at the op- optimum, optimum level. Mm. And then people like you and me switch on the air conditioners and our consumption increases. So the heat, I believe, definitely plays a role in ESCOM's woes and our suffering. Antoinette, the electricity minister is due to brief at 3 o'clock this afternoon. As you and I have this conversation, it's just after 12 noon on Friday. Uh, What's he likely to say? Oh, Jeremy, you know, at these kind of uh, press briefings, we always hear about this unit that was supposed to come back to service and it was delayed and that unit that broke down um, un- unexpectedly. But what we need is a, a change in the bigger picture. We need to see a change in ESCOM's overall energy availability of its gen- generation fleet. 
We, uh, on the contrary, every year it decreases. It's about 55% at the moment. We eat 60% once uh, uh, in, in one week as a weekly average this year. Um, so there does not seem to be a change in the downward trend of the performance of the, uh, of the power stations. And the system operator at ESCOM, who is the office that really balances the system and has to decide whether um, load shedding is necessary and at what level. The system operator recently said in a report that for the next three or oh, next five years, uh, the only thing that will really make a big difference is the increase in the energy availability of ESCOM. We need those plants to perform better. Um, National Treasury appointed a, a German team to look at the possibility of increasing the performance, but that report is kept under wraps. They promised to make it public, but it has not yet been made public. And we would like to know, can these plants be, uh, the performance of these plants be improved? Or are they like Andre de Reiter said, or, or is it like he said, like flogging a dead horse. And Antoinette, there is a disconnect, I guess, inevitably between what the politicians say and what the reality on the ground is. I quoted the Financial Times uh, saying that Pravin Gordon uh, believed it's unlikely we'll return to stage six. He was talking to the FT on Tuesday. It's now Friday. Uh, You spoke about the energy availability factor. Once we've hit 60 percent, politicians were celebrating that. But uh, it also seems they've been very economical with the truth and too quick to celebrate. Yes, we eat 60% for, you know, it's almost like we eat it for, for five minutes. And they said we've reached the um, bottom of the curve. The turnaround is, is coming and that kind of thing. Um, I think when Pravan Gordon said we're not going back to stage six, he might have said a quiet prayer in the background (laughs) but we must realize that these uh, breakdowns are unexpected by definition they are unexpected so you cannot predict them but that is why it is important to look at the trend and the trend is not positive Antoinette Slabert who works for Rapport newspaper thank you very much indeed MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up to date stories Well, let's stay with the weather and the climate. And this week, the Gauteng Department of Agriculture, Rural Development and Environment holding a climate change in Daba. Basani Ndindani is the Director of Environmental Policy and Planning and joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And given the recent devastating impact of climate change in South Africa, do you believe that current efforts to mitigate in the province are adequate or falling short? Obviously, we have developed a plan, a Gauteng City Region Overarching Response Plan and Action Plan and an Implementation Plan, which directs various sectors in how they're supposed to respond, particularly looking at the private sector, government, local government, NGOs, the various sectors, looking at the pillars of our strategy. So I would say that we do have the right strategies And the main essence of us getting together in a form of a summit is to check what is the private sector doing, what is other government departments doing, what is local government doing, what is business doing. There are particular areas that we we are doing well. There are particular areas that still need improvement. Now, as far as uh, the plan is concerned, what is the specific ask as far as the industrial sector goes, particularly in their contribution to... um, 
climate change and what are you asking them to do? We are asking business to look at how to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in terms of operations. So we want to promote industrial efficiency as well as cleaner production in that respect. So people that have operations in terms of mitigating your greenhouse emissions. We are also wanting industry to go into the green building space. So we as a department have a partnership with the Green Building Council of South Africa. Mm. So if you look in Gauteng, there's a lot in terms of the property sector. So we are wanting to push the direction of having green buildings, which then also talks to efficiency and reducing your greenhouse gas emissions, but also talking to the adaptation aspect. So we are promoting that you should have your solar rooftops, you should have some efficiency in in your whole reticulation cycle. But also from an adaptation point of view, when we look at our human settlements, be it from the private sector, from government, we say there should be the planting of trees, your food garden, which talks to your carbon sequestration. So it's a whole aspect. So it's an integrated approach. And this is a, this is a, it's a very comprehensive approach from what I'm hearing you say, but I'm wondering if it isn't a little bit too tame. Have we not gone beyond the carrot approach here? Do you not need to start wielding a stick and becoming a little bit more punitive in making sure that regulation is followed given the climate crisis that the world and the province right now is facing? No, definitely. We, as the province, is looking forward to the implementation of the climate change bill that National has been championing. But also from our side, we have environmental authorizations. Our environmental authorizations also have conditions that talk to sustainability and green buildings as well as climate change. So through that, compliance and monitoring is therefore a proper channel in terms of the permits that we are issuing around development. And people, and people who transgress, what happens to them? How are they going to be punished? It depends on the authorization. Remember, the authorization would detail what you're supposed to comply with. So I can't really give an indication to say this would be the approach. It is obviously, if it's a permit, a permit is issued for a particular development. And then your compliance monitoring then speaks to what is it that you have outlined as well in your environmental management plans. Do you have the ability and the capacity to monitor sufficiently? Yes, I believe the province has the ability to monitor sufficiently, be it from environmental authorization, be it from an emission, uh, your AELs that are being issued. Explain to me how that monitoring is going to happen. We do have a dedicated unit that talks to compliance monitoring in the department. So the compliance monitoring team goes to industry. They do monitor in terms of your emission licenses. They do monitor in terms of your environmental authorizations. But the criticism is that that unit is too small and is simply overwhelmed with work. I think the department has the capacity to respond. Obviously, they partner uh, with local government. They partner with national department when they do their operations in terms of compliance monitoring. There is a smaller compliance and monitoring, which speaks to your smaller developments. But for the big industries, the department works with other relevant institutions to ensure that when they go out and monitor compliance, it's an integrated Mm. approach between local government, provincial and national department. Do you believe industry is taking adequate enough responsibility for their negative impact? Yeah, I would say uh, to a certain extent, obviously there are some industries that are transgressing, but I would say industry has the potential. Let me put it that way. Industry has the potential. That's why we as government want to indicate to province and we want to promote that industry 
implement their environmental authorizations, implement their permits to ensure that they comply. So we as government advocate that company must comply with, with their conditions, but also there's responsible action that they need to do. Companies are mandated to be responsible, not just through environmental authorizations, but through various other legislations, be it development mm. applications, be it bylaws that they're supposed to. So there is enough and adequate uh, laws that regulate how industry participates mm. or conduct themselves. The challenge, of course, is always going to be to enforce that legislation. I'm going to leave it there. Basani Indadani, thank you very much indeed. Director, Environmental Policy and Planning here in Gauteng. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now you'll know by now that South Africans won't have to deal with an interest rate hike ahead of the festive season. The repo rate remaining steady at eight and a quarter percent. So where does this where does this leave us at the end of the year? And perhaps more importantly, how is the rates environment shaping up for 2024? Joining us now on MoneyWeb at Midday is Sanisha. Pakiri Sami, who is an economist at Momentum. Sanisha, a very warm welcome to you. Before we get to the rates, you'll know that we've just gone to stage six load shedding. Uh, This is always going to have uh, an impact on the economy, isn't it? Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. Yes, unfortunately, load shedding and the electricity constraints are having quite a negative impact on growth. I would add to that and say that transport and logistics is also another element that is capping the growth potential in South Africa. But I think before we become too negative on the load shedding situation, uh, we do need to remember that ESCOM tends to ramp up their maintenance plans over the summer months. And so we should expect a higher level of load shedding into the end of the year. However, if we go into the second half of next year, I think we're going to be looking at a a reasonably brighter outlook for South Africa, no pun intended, with, you know, quite a significant pipeline of renewable energy projects that are likely to start coming through, as well as some of the older uh, plants which have then been maintained coming back on stream again. Sanisha, I'll take as many puns as you want to throw throw at me uh, on this uh, Black Friday, so don't worry about that. Um, let's get back to the to the repo rate if we can, but let's talk about tone and sentiment. Uh, a fairly hawkish tone coming from the MPC yesterday despite holding the rate. Uh, what's the underlying strategy or rationale behind this approach, do you think? I think that underlying approach really is to maintain this hawkish rhetoric to say that there are still inflation risks out there and we do need to be cognizant of trying to rein in inflation expectations and not let them de-anchor too far away from the midpoint of the target range. And I don't think that this is a unique sentiment for South Africans. I think that this is playing out in the global environment where central banks are most likely approaching the end of the interest rate hiking cycle but maintaining quite a lot of caution because they are quite worried about declaring a victory over inflation too soon. We've seen studies out of the International Monetary Fund that have looked at the past 100 inflation shocks in history, and we've often seen that when central banks get quite comfortable that they've done enough on interest rates and then become a bit more relaxed about it, there is another inflation shock that comes up causing a second leg of inflation. I think central banks are quite cognizant of that and really trying to prevent that this time around. Of concern, of course, is food inflation, if I'm not mistaken, around 8.7% in October. uh, And that is going to have a negative impact on households, isn't it? So food and fuel inflation at the moment are the two primary factors that are 
pushing up inflation. Um, you know, there was a, obviously a surprise in the latest inflation print to 5.9%. The market was looking for something that was at least 0.3% softer. And again, the main culprits were food inflation and fuel inflation. On the fuel inflation front, I think we will see some reprieve in the next two inflation readings, given that there was a petrol price cut for November and another uh, reasonably large one anticipated for December. On the food side of things, I think the biggest threat right now is, of course, the drier weather conditions, which we call El Nino, coming through. And, of course, the persistent load shedding, which does affect industries like the poultry industry. Um, going into next year, we anticipate that inflation on average will remain reasonably high. Uh, but if we think about the risks to inflation, El Nino, as an example, we've got good soil moisture. Even though we are heading into a drier weather pattern, we had four years in a row of above average rainfall. Uh, given that a lot of the price increases associated with load shedding already came through this year, we think that that will become less of an effect next year. And of course, we are starting to see in certain elements of the global food basket that prices are coming down. So I think these factors together should start to see inflation on average uh, looking a little bit better into 2024-2025. Sunisha, there was an interesting note in the commentary, the Reserve Bank Governor pointing out risks in the four forecast for average salaries. What are his worries? Their main concerns are really the fact that food and fuel inflation have been quite high, pushing up the cost of living. And if you think about it, we know that higher inflation rates tend to hit the poor disproportionately in South Africa. So if you look at the last six months in SA, the inflation rate that the bottom 30% of spenders were facing was around 8.6%. However, if you look at the top 30% of spenders in South Africa, the inflation rate was closer to 5.4%. So there was more than a 3% gap in the inflation rate that was faced by the poorest versus the richest of South Africa. Now, when workers see that food and fuel price costs are picking up, their cost of living starts to increase, they then demand higher salary and wages from their employers. And that can become then a self-fulfilling prophecy because those corporates will then start to put up prices on their goods and services so they can maintain their bottom line of profitability. And I think this is really a key concern of the Reserve Bank. They have mentioned that they don't particularly see this type of wage price spiral yet being entrenched in the South African economy, but we cannot rule that out as a risk to the inflation outlook. Thank you very much indeed, Sanisha Pakiri-Sami, an economist at Momentum. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's stay with the economy. And here's something to ponder as you queue for your bargain ice cream maker on this Black Friday weekend. Do you need it? Can you afford it? Are you being ripped off? Lee Subrati is Consumer Goods and Services Ombudsman and joins us now on the program. And firstly, are consumers generally educated enough, I wonder, to differentiate between genuine bargains and marketing gimmicks? You see, consumer education is something that we can never get enough of. And what we find, especially around these periods, is that customers, they get a bit of formal when it comes to buying, and they sort of do a lot of emotional spending and emotional buying, specifically since it's been a difficult year. So to answer your question, I would say I don't think there's enough consumer education. It's something that we have to consistently instill into consumers to let them know that this, in light of the limited financial climate that we find ourselves, it's always important to budget and just to make sure that they do the shopping around to ensure that they are getting the best bargains when they shop. And all of that makes sense, but at a time like this, uh, a sort of end of the year retail madness sets in and people ignore all of that advice. Yes. 
Yeah, no, no, for sure. Which is why we had a time where we want to spoil our families. We've worked hard this entire year. And I mean, consumers, and it's, it's shocking how many consumers don't know the rights that they have in terms of the Consumer Protection Act. Things like bait marketing, things like, you know, going to a store and, uh, and prices because, you know, the thousands of items that are displayed, especially on this day, things are likely to go wrong at some point. So as a consumer, you have to inform yourself to know what your rights are. And yes, you are allowed to spoil yourself, but there are limits to everything, you know, and which is why you have to be a prudent consumer, uh, check the prices before you buy them, possibly a week before, you know, do your homework to make sure that prices prices are not unnecessarily inflated before a day like this, just to make sure that you are, like I'm saying, making the best purchase when you are uh, out there looking for goods. Let's, let's expand that a little bit. Uh, do you think there's evidence to suggest that retailers at this time use deceptive practices like artificially inflating prices? So what we must understand is that the concept of Black Friday and especially at times such as this, it's to add momentum, you know, to the economy. This is a time where supplies want to push out some of the stock that they've been holding for, you know, in the year. So I would say that to paint all suppliers with that sort of brush would be wrong. But I would say that it's up to the consumer. Remember, there's rights and responsibilities on both parties, which is why a prudent consumer a week before or even a time such as this, you know, as a consumer, what goods you need for your household, you know what you normally buy on a regular basis. Beware of the prices because sometimes like I'm saying is that you are going to get retailers who maybe use this time to, to push out goods that have been holding on for a while which is why you as a consumer you have to be pedantic when it comes to, the, to these things be meticulous with prices ask a lot of questions before you make purchases especially when you're purchasing online so yes the right is there to protect a consumer from bait marketing so look out for things like while stocks last limited stock available those sort of things are sometimes what suppliers use in order to you know entice consumers to come into the store to, to purchase goods but as a consumer you have to be wary and you have to protect yourself because when things go wrong you are obviously going to be subject to the system as to how quickly your matter can get resolved there's nothing wrong with pushing product uh, that that's the raison d'etre for for, for retail but the concern yes. is artificial inflation of prices uh, and that happens doesn't it so, I mean, as a consumer, we, I mean, we walk into stores daily and we see prices. I mean, this week, a product would be at a certain price that we're not sure how financial markets sometimes, you know, they fluctuate in light of their interest rates. And we know that it's it increased quite substantially this year. In fact, so some prices are subject to change based on inflation. But the important thing is disclosure. And disclosure, as long as your provider discloses the full price, including the VAT, all of those prices, as a supplier, I can market my goods exactly how I want it as long as I provide the consumer with the necessary information so that when they are making that purchase at the time they are informed and I'm not trying to mislead them or how can mm. I say this, try to withhold information from them before they make that purchase. Do you think that information that is supposed to be displayed is lacking? No. So, in fact, from the complaints that we've received at the office, we've received very few complaints relating to prices and non-disclosure of prices, so to speak. And remember, which is why, as a consumer, until you make a purchase, until you swipe your card for a a specific product, you have rights to ask whatever you need to ask. And even if you get to the till, and the act is quite clear, that if a product is marked incorrectly or if a product is marked much less than what it's supposed to be subject to reason, subject to what a reasonable consumer would do in that circumstances, you are entitled to a consumer 
alternative to that product at that lower price. So yes, we know that with the influx of specials and I mean with the thousands of products that are floating around at this given time, there's bound to have to be situations where prices are maybe displayed incorrectly or price mm-hmm. falls off for that sort of thing, which is why as a consumer, you have to inform yourself, ask the question before you purchase it is because once you swipe your card sort of thing, you know, there's a lot of questions that one needs to ask at that moment to determine, listen, is it unfair on the consumer? How can the ombud help? So yeah, there are a lot of circumstances revolving around the pricing issue and display. The consumer has got all the laws in their favor, but it is hard, is it not, to hold the retail industry to account when there is a conflict? So this is why offices like us exist, the Ombud. Remember, the the Consumer Goods and Services Ombud was specifically established in order to promote the Consumer Protection Act as an impartial unbiased body to resolve a dispute, but the rights are there. So while we say that there's a lot of rights in favor of consumer, those rights are there to protect not only the consumer, but also the supplier, also the retailer and credit provider. I mean, we've got 1,500 odd participants and from our sort of analysis of the industry at large is that we are seeing compliance, we are seeing retailers come, coming to the fore and being compliant. However, you are going to get your rogue retailers, your online scammers that are trying to obviously dupe the consumer. So, which is why we so of push the forward the point is that as a consumer you have to be proactive and you have to be aware especially at a time like this lee subati thank you very much indeed the consumer goods and services ombudsman you're listening to money web at midday and finally on the program if you're sick and tired of load shedding and uh, you are bored of standing in black friday queues you might want to move and downsize. Well, remote work has become standard and many South Africans are choosing to move to smaller towns looking for a slower pace of life. But it's not always a success. There can be hidden and unforeseen problems. The issue has been tackled by travel writer and photographer Julie DeToy, co-author of the book Moving to the Platterland. So, Julie, what factors should be considered if you're planning the move? I think each person or family is different. Obviously, you have to take in mind or bear in mind things like health services. If your health is a little wobbly, you know, just make sure there are doctors and or hospitals. If you have pets, make sure there's a vet nearby. Um, you know, the basic sort of things. Check out the municipality. Ask locals. I mean, go to the bar and chat to locals and chat to the new incomers as well. You know, because people mm. come with fresh eyes and they can say, or, you know, look out for this and that, or no, actually, you know, half of the week you don't get water or whatever. So, but part of the, you know, I think one of the, the, the most fun things is traveling around this country, exploring little towns, many of which you, you may not, you know, sort of consider as options, but just seeing South Africa close up and then coming to a town, maybe falling in love with it, meeting locals that you really enjoy then ticking the boxes okay so it does have you know i can afford it there are schools or there's a good school if you know if you have kids right and obviously the first prize is if you have an online business i mean oh my god what are you still doing in the city you can move anywhere you like and um there's almost uh, everywhere there's fiber or good um good internet uh, coverage problem of course is that people often get blinded by the romanticism of the whole idea and uh, in in business terms they don't do sufficient due diligence do they absolutely everybody will warn you do your homework uh, look we, we have met people who've sort of like on a wing and a prayer and the sign of an owl in the sky or whatever have decided oh this is my place you know and bought a house or people buy sight unseen off the internet which startles me every time and some of them make a very good go of it and love it and but 
really you've got to do your homework. You've got to go there and go in all seasons. Don't just sort of like go on a holiday and think, oh, this is marvelous. I'm buying a house. Mm. Go during the winter. Go during the low season. Go when it's cold and miserable. See whether you can really live there. And in fact, the best thing to do, possibly, if you've narrowed it down and you think, okay, well, this is my dorp. Maybe rent a place for a while or do, I don't know, house sitting or something. So you get a really good idea because quite honestly, you know, if you're arriving there with, as I said, with your packets of Woolies food and you're there <laughs> for a weekend and it's, oh, so nice. But then you don't know the nitty gritty of the town when it's when there's no water flowing or there's no electricity sure. or the shops are bad or, you know, you realize everything in the shops is, gets there wilted because it's been from Joburg to PE to are to wherever and then arrives at your, all right. your so supermarket let's shelves. assume then that you've done all of that you've made the decision um, from your experience yes. how difficult was it then to immerse and ingratiate yourself okay it does depend on the town and some towns are more accepting of what they call incomers you know and in- incomers than others you'll find a place they'll just accept you and they'll include you very quickly other places, I don't know, that you're always in the status of the, you know, the outsider. But it varies so much. But the social life in a town is far more vibrant in a little dorp, far more vibrant than cities. I mean, I, I met a woman, where was she, in Ritbrun, who says, you know, it gets so hectic, I have to, you know, take the phone off the hook sometimes because, you know, just for a little piece and so I can have a day to myself because, you know, you're invited to the tennis club and the, the Afal Hilder, the this, the that. And at the beginning, actually, go to everything. Go to the Kirk bazaars, you know, the church bazaars. Go to everywhere you're invited to, whatever clubs. And there are plenty, plenty, plenty. There's bowling clubs, there's gardening clubs, there's book clubs, there's ah, swimming clubs, tennis clubs, you name it. What was the biggest mistake mm-hmm. that you made? I think just assuming that fresh fruits and vegetables would be readily available in a small town because, hello, you're surrounded by farmers. Wouldn't they be farming vegetables and things? No, no, they don't. So you've got to sort of be clever about your shopping and, you know, so-and-so is growing pumpkins and this one is doing that. We never really made really big mistake, but I do know of people who have, who came to a small town like uh, Merveville saw it in season, thought it was a hell of a stylish and cute little town, opened quite an elaborate kind of a restaurant. That's another big mistake that people make in small towns, opening restaurants. It is hazardous. And then thought, oh, well, you know, this is going to be quite a sophisticated thing and thought people would flock to it. Well, they didn't. And then, and if you, for heaven's sake, if you offend some of the locals, my Lord, you know, every local is connected to every other local. They're all married. They're interconnected. Mm. They know each other from school, whatever. And and then you you sometimes feel yourself isolated because now you've insulted so-and-so and then the, the town sort of, you know, doesn't want to accept you or they kind of avoid you. Julie, this is a so, this is a very um, difficult interview for me to do because as I'm talking to you, I'm also Googling places like Ritbron and Merveville. Uh, you, you te- you're telling me about places in South Africa that I didn't know existed. Time is always yeah, against I us. I, I want to ask you one final question. You also write in the book that it's critical that there is a strong civil society ethos. A person should look out for that. Yes. Explain that to me. Craddock, where we live, is a very good example of that. You know, if you look at the bottom of that story in Daily Maverick, you'll see a few people have mentioned the litter in Craddock, and absolutely this does happen. We have a terribly weak municipality, and it has just become weaker. So during a particular crisis, a guy called Lo Fenter, who is a businessman in town, runs the jewelry shop and, um, and, a, and a gun center, anyway, 
he decided this is it, we have to do something. And they formed the Cradock Community Forum, the Cradock Gemeenskap Forum. And these guys, they got hold of a bucky. All they do now is clean up. They clean up and they paint, they try and repair, they try and plant things where they can, you know, beautify traffic islands. I think Cradock would be intolerable without them. Mm. You know, it still struggles because, you know, you're basically doing the municipality's job for nothing. So that kind of community spirit, and when people say, hey, the canals are blocked, we need help, and people just stream in, they'll say, okay, we can supply this, we'll help with food, you know, for whoever's the workers. Whatever crisis there is, I think I would rather be in a small town when there's a disaster than any other place in the world. And that's where I'm going to um, leave it. Uh, Julie Detroit, thank you very much indeed. Co-author of the book Moving to the Platterland. And thank you so much for some very valuable advice to people who might be considering the move. And just before we leave you, other stories on our radar. President Ramaphosa says he's given Transnet until next year to resolve the country's ports crisis. And a ceasefire in Gaza between Israel and Hamas is now in effect, ahead of the expected release of the first group of Israeli hostages held by the Islamist organization in return for Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a good weekend and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.